I've always had a very healthy respect for journalists. Um, and I actually even uh, have a friend who was in ministry turned into uh, to give her life to the pursuit of truth through journalism. And I think it's such a noble thing because partly is it's hard. There's a lot of information out there. If you know a journalist who's worth their salt, they know so much. The breadth of their knowledge is just vast. Um, I grew up, uh, actually not grew up, but I was, when I was working at the University of Washington in a lab, I was listening to the NPR, and there was this guy named Ray Suarez, I don't know if you're, you'd be a little older to remember him. He was uh, leading this one show called Talk of the Nation. I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, that guy knew everything in the world. There's not one thing he did not know. In fact, they kind of joked on it that he actually has this kind of almost prescience, like this prophetic knowledge, because journalists... You ask them, they know everything that is happening in the world right now. And just for, for me, I, I, like, I consider them the really high bar. They're pursuing the truth often at their own cost. So when a journalist doesn't know something, either they're a bad journalist or it actually tells you that, it, that that thing which seems to be so important or valuable has gone to obscurity. Well... Um, there is this guy, his name is Benjamin Netanyahu, he's the Prime Minister of Israel, and he was at this press uh, junket, and he was kind of touting this incredible technology that Israel has come up with, and he was saying, look, we can actually bring water from the air and use it for the arid places, and he made a comment about Moses, and interestingly, because he's, he's Jewish, everybody knows Moses in, in, in Israel, and in most in the United States as well, and he kind of saying, Moses did this, but we can do even better. We can bring water from, uh, water from the air. Interestingly enough, the people who were there, the journalists from the Wall Street Journal, who, who are pretty good journalists, you know what they quoted him as saying? Moses brought water from Iraq. So what does that mean? They heard him say, Moses brought water from Iraq. But we can bring water from the air. But this journalist had no idea that that was part of the biblical story. That, in fact, this is such a big thing. God provided for his people when there was no water, and Moses actually hit the rock, and water came out. Later on, he, he was supposed to talk to it, but he didn't, and so on and so forth. But it was actually basically saying that all throughout the whole trip in the Old Testament, while they're 40 years with no water, Every time they needed water, Moses would get water from a rock. But these journalists <laughs> don't know their Bible, obviously. Wait, he must have said Moses brought water from Iraq. <laughs> and they quoted that. Well, they had to make a, somebody found out and said they had to make a correction. But when a journalist doesn't know one of the key points of the biblical story, it tells you something. Oh, something's kind of off. Our culture doesn't really pay attention to the Bible anymore. Not to say that we have to be these religious people who know the Bible, but wait a minute, the Bible has been so central to the way that we built up our legal system, the way they built up our, our, our social system, our values. And in fact, it's getting more and more so that just in general, people don't know the Bible. They don't read, but they just don't even know or aware. Some people are, in response to this actually happening, somebody said, you know, this next generation, and I'm not against millennials. I love millennials, okay? Um, but they would say these, these bad millennials, you know. They, don't, they draw all of their wisdom and figure out how to, way to live. They are more aware of Harry Potter than they are of the Bible. They'll reference Harry Potter for a life circumstance situation than they will the Bible. It might be true. Who's read Harry Potter? Yeah. All right. I see some. All right. All right. Very, very good. Yeah. I, I like Harry Potter, but I'm like, this isn't like 
so important that I'm going to base my life. But there's an article, actually, if you can see, from uh, Washington Post, Christine Edna. She wrote, Millennials are turning to Harry Potter for meaning. In other words, she's describing this one conference that these two Harvard philosophy professors, Harvard uh, professors were having. And they were arguing, I don't think they were facetious, they were arguing that we should look at Harry Potter's texts with the same amount of sacredness as the Bible and the Koran. Okay? Um, Isn't that interesting that people are looking to something to guide them? What is the world like? Battle between good and evil. How do you face it with courage? How do you, you, they're looking, and there's some good themes in Harry Potter, but instead of drawing the blueprint of who am I, why am I here, how am I supposed to live from the Bible, they're looking to Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, so we can say that the, the world in general, if journalists don't even know the biblical story, how is the rest of the people aware of who God is and how he's described himself and what the big plan of the, of, of the world is going to be? But the scarier part is not so much that the world doesn't know because actually it doesn't, that's okay. I'm, I'm not going to blame somebody who's not a Christian why they don't know the Bible, honestly. That's, that's kind of unfair. That's like this one politician when the, Christ, when the Jews and the Arabs were fighting, 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 he stopped and says, come on, guys, can't we all be just Christians here, right? That's an idiotic thing to think that the world should know the Bible. It's the Christians, the ones who actually who wrap their lives around God, who acknowledge him and want to know him. They're the ones who are supposed to know, but the people are saying, what's worse is there's a huge Christian biblical illiteracy. In other words, the Christians don't know the Bible at all, okay, just in general. Not everybody, but in general, um, so they actually did a whole study by Barna and by the Pew Institute and so on and so forth, trying to get a sense of, do people really know the, some of the details of the Bible? For example, they asked the question, who is Joan of Arc? And they gave some answers. Did you know that 10% of Christians said that Joan of Arc is Noah's wife? Okay. Do you know how ridiculous that is? Not so much that they not only know the Bible, they don't even know history, <laughs> right? Joan of Arc, because Noah made an ark, and so... He, Joan of Arc means, this is how ridiculous Christians can be. Okay, you just got that? <laughs> yeah. If you see this on a quiz, don't answer. <laughs> Joan of Arc is Noah's, Noah's wife. Um, they were asked, name the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, obviously. But 50% of the Christians couldn't name. That's, that's the story of Jesus, right? So if you're not a Christian, you grow up in church, uh, there's, you shouldn't know. I mean, why should you? Actually, it's... It's central to our history. It's central to our understanding of literature. It's so important. It's so informative to our culture. But even so, you know, who can blame you? But if Christians don't know, that's a different story. They were asked how many of the Christians actually could name the Ten Commandments. Yeah. 60% can't name all ten. Okay. Why is this important? Because if this is the core of what it means to love God and love others, and you don't, can't even name them, how can you live it? How can you follow it? How can you say, I am trying to live out a Christian life or a godly life if you don't even know what it's supposed to be? Yeah. Scriptures declare, your word, this is in the book of Psalm, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It's a way of saying that I can't figure out life. I can't see things clearly. It's dark out. I need help. And God's revealing of himself through the Bible, through the scriptures, is like a lamp. You know, we don't have carry those lamps anymore, but I went on a walk with my dog late at night because I got home late and she hadn't been walked and she was all feisty and, f- and she needed to burn off some energy. So I went on a walk, a long 45-minute walk, and it was pretty dark where I went. But I had my flashlight. I could see everything 
right in front of me. I could, it was only a little hand flashlight, so I, you know, I couldn't see it all, but I could see. It made such a difference. I knew where I was going. I knew where to look and so on and so forth. That's what's crying. The, the word of God is to be to us. This guide, this map, this entrance into a relationship, a deep relationship with God. And yet, it's not just the world that doesn't know the Bible. It's actually those in the church who don't know the Bible. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Number one, people argue against preachers. Preachers aren't preaching the Bible. You know, and it's, it's kind of true. Preachers aren't preaching the Bible. Uh, but number two, nobody's reading the Bible. Nobody's reading in general. Okay, this, that's, we're all texting. <laughs> um, we're not reading. Well, I said last week that I couldn't find numbers in terms of who's reading the Bible in America and who's not. I found numbers. Uh, I had to put in, it's at this website, wildhoskins.com. But uh, if you see, that far left category is those who are reading every day, and the far right who has never read. Okay? You don't have to look at all the numbers, but the higher you go is the younger you are, for the most part, except for a couple in the middle. But you see, the all elders in the church, is, I think it says 27% are actually reading it every day, um, but all teens are in the 4%, and in varying degrees. What is that saying? We're just not reading, first of all. But number two, we're not really reading the Bible. And the, part of the reason is it's hard. It's a different culture. It's weird. It doesn't answer you the way that you want it to answer. It's not like a simple, easy stories or, or uh, like almost a little formula. It's, in fact, the Hebrew narrative tells you sparse details. You have to really pay attention. The poetry is a little weird if you're not in, into poetry. You have to learn how to understand. And... Even when Jesus is speaking directly, he's using agricultural you know, stuff. He's not talking about social media. Uh, it's, it's hard to, to grasp. It's a different culture. And yet, where do we go to have this relationship with God? How do we know who he is? How do we know who we are, well, how we're supposed to live, what God's big plan is and how we fit into it? In fact, without this access to, this appropriation, this infusion of God's truth and his word, in fact, we stay in the dark. And so this is one of the reasons why I really kind of felt like, wow, we really need to spend time. We need to have a concerted effort as a community to, to actually get to know God through the scriptures, get to know God through prayer. We have to have a firsthand relationship and a growing one, um, as I talked about last week. And so we set aside these next eight weeks starting today to be not just a Sunday thing or a small group thing, but a daily thing. Monday through Saturday directly, where we're going to actually commit, for those of you who are willing to join us, to commit to spending time with God every day, connecting with him, communing with him, listening, trying to, trying to gauge, to receive from him and share what's in our hearts. This is all relational stuff. So what I wanted to do is I want to talk a little about, is this just, you know, some old-fashioned preacher saying, you should know your Bible, right? Because I, I heard a lot of those. Or is actually there's something in the scriptures that are prompting us to say this is important? Well, the verse, one of the verses that you heard uh, read to you this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 up through 15. Chapter 2 through 15. And this is the way Paul is addressing Timothy. And I want you to give you some context. We went through the whole book of 1 Timothy together uh, during the summer. But uh, if you know the story, the church in Ephesus, they had all these leaders, these elders, who were so caught up in false stories, controversies, all this little nitty-gritty, but they did not know how to handle the truth. And in fact, their misappropriation of truth, their twisting of it, meant they lived really ungodly, really corrupted lives. 
And so Paul is constantly telling Timothy and the church in Ephesus, get this right. This is important. There's so many false ways of understanding the world and living that if you don't get this right, you're in trouble. But it's still going on. So he's telling Timothy, someone who knows the scriptures, who's been very well mentored by his mom and his grandmother, who has walked with Paul, who knows Jesus. And he's saying, put this, make this a part of your life. At the same time, he's telling the church in Ephesus through Timothy, everyone should pay attention to this and live this out too. He says, do your best. That means put all your energy, make every effort. This is not an optional. This is a a priority to present yourself to God as one approved. What does that mean? One day we're going to see God at the end of our lives and we're going to be held to account. He's going to look at the way we lived. Every word that we've spoken what choices we've made. And it's kind of scary because we don't want to think of all of our thoughts and our decisions being read and judged by somebody. But that's actually who God is. Um, There's grace because Christ, when he went to the cross, washed all our sins away. But that grace doesn't lead us to say, I can live however I want. It actually, once you've actually been touched by God, drawn to God, you want to live well. You want to live right. But it's saying, there's... One aspect of here that's pointing out that God is going to be looking for, he's going to be paying attention. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one who he'll say, good job, approved, you did it right. This is where you emphasize, and this is where you bore fruits, and this is what you did right, what I wanted you to do. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. What does that mean? What's he pointing out here? What is one aspect of our accountability before God? Did we take the time? Did we do our best effort so that when we see him face to face, we're not going to say, oh, I goofed off. I spent all my time paying attention to all these different narratives and stuff, but I didn't know how to handle the word of truth. Okay? We're either going to be approved or ashamed. Okay? Well, I love this language because it's actually saying, not so it's a scary thing, you better know your truth, but it's actually saying, Our life counts so much that, in fact, how we know the truth well matters. So when I go to seminary in India and I teach uh, Bible, uh, I get really angry because there are some students in there and they're slouching off. They're not paying attention. Like, oh, who cares? I'm going to go preach in a rural church and all they want is miracles. I don't have to know the Bible. I get really angry. I'm like, do you know lives, souls, eternal souls, you know, uh, are in your hands? That God is sending you there. And I, I, get, I get a little, a little uppity and I have to ask, ask for forgiveness. Um, but actually, what is he saying? Not just to preachers. Do you know how much your life counts? Can you imagine for a doctor who gets past the boards by cheating somehow and he doesn't know what he's doing and he has your life in your hands and he screws up and he's a drunk? How angry would you be? Right? You took an oath. Okay, you represent far more than what you're going to get from your practice. You're supposed to take your craft carefully. You have to know the truth and handle it well when it comes to the body because lives are in your hands. He's not just telling this to Timothy or to the Ephesians or to pastors or training pastors. He's telling this to everyone. Our lives matter. It's such a beautiful thing. Anytime somebody takes you into account, they're taking you seriously. God takes your life so seriously in saying, you have to know the truth and you have to handle it well. Because there's lots of different stuff out there. Um, 
not just to represent him, but to live a good life, a fruitful life. How do we do this? How do we get to be a place where God will say, approved, not ashamed? Because you're handling the word of truth well, accurately, okay? It doesn't come by simply just you're a genius, okay? It doesn't come by uh, osmosis. Uh, you put your, you put your uh, uh, Bible against your head and maybe some of it will go in. I know people actually who play the Bible in the background while they're sleeping. Hopefully they click in somehow in their subconscious. Okay? It comes through an intentional activity. It comes through work. Work. That word worker. Okay? That word worker. I don't like that word. Because when most of us think about reading the Bible and doing Bible study and devotion, it's like, oh, man, i got to do another chore. i got to do another work. But I'm thankful that that's like, it's pretty much straight up. The only way to actually live a life with God is you have to put your energy regular, faithful, okay? It can't be a hobby. It can't be a, a dalliance. Eh, it's kind of interesting for a little while and put it down. You got to be a worker. This is a blue-collar job, okay? Blue-collar. And um, I was going to put in uh, white construction workers, but we have bad interpretation of white construction I'm, I'm sorry. It's just the case. You know, I see those construction workers, and they're, they're, they're never working. I don't know why. I'm like in a traffic, traffic jam. I'm like, why aren't you working? Right? That's just me. Um, I'm, I must be racist. But an Asian worker, man, they, they crack whip. Right? Think of it that way. Somebody who does their work really well. They're skilled, and they're energized, and they're really putting their self, uh, put their selves into it. You could tell somebody who's worked. Look at their hands, okay? Their hands are calloused, okay? You could tell by how they handle, handle their, their craft. So um, when I was a younger man, I went down to Mexico to build houses uh, for the poor in Tijuana, and uh, we were building a house, and it was so much fun. I was like, we built a house in like four or five days. It was amazing, right? Two days for the foundation, and the walls were coming up, and we're putting up all these walls, and they were told us to drive these, these long nails into the, into the two-by-fours to frame the walls, and... Here I am, and I thought I was a pretty good, you know, I'm a handy guy, but I'm like, my, my, my thumb is all red because I smacked it with the hammer so often, and I'm just like, tuk, tuk, it's like, oh, right? And, and I see a guy, and I'm frustrated because there's a knot in this wood, and I can't get it in. And the guy comes over, and he pulls out this really long, heavy hammer, and he puts the nail there, and then he goes, flack! And in one shot, that nail came in. I, Ten minutes, I couldn't get that nail in. I was like, oh, that's a worker, Yeah. You can tell somebody who accurately handles a hammer because they've been doing it. That's how we're supposed to approach our life with God in the scriptures, like a worker who's not ashamed, okay? When Jesus says, come and hit this hammer, right? We're like, ah, ow. Instead, we know what we're doing because God has brought that to us daily. Well, um, the word I use to describe this is help us understand how, at what depth and level we're supposed to become to grow into. You can't do it in a day. Like, I didn't learn that in a day, but just how, where we're supposed to grow into and what we can grow into is the word infusion. I like the word infusion because it means it's gotten inside you. It means it's a part of you. It's like through your very your, your blood vessels. Um, I watch commercials sometimes. The ladies tell me if I'm wrong, but these commercials talk about, ooh, there's this shampoo that's really expensive, and you put it in your hair, and all this collagen and all kinds of things and oils get in infused in your head. As you walk around, your hair is so beautiful. They, that's how they sell you, right? Am I, did, am I paying attention to the commercials correctly or not? Because all the ladies in the first service, they laughed at me. And I'm like, okay. Uh, but I, I, I know other ways of describing infusion. 
Um, I have this fence, and it was in bad shape, but guess what? When you put stain on it, not only just looks good, what does the stain do? It creeps into the pores, and it doesn't just color it and make it look nice. It actually protects it. It, it helps to actually preserve it because it's the, the stain, the oils have been infused inside. They're even having what they call IV infusion therapy now where actually they're putting stuff directly into you because just if you eat it, it doesn't always get inside you. It kind of passes through. Everybody's like popping vitamins through pills and then they test it and they're like, there's nothing in your system, you know? Um, even vegetables are no good anymore because vegetables, the amount of, this is, this is what I read, I'm, I'm reading all the time. Vegetables, broccoli, it has like one-fifth of the calcium it did only 20 years ago. So, like, it can just even be inside your body, but it just comes and passes through. You can be soaking in it, but if it doesn't infuse you, it doesn't make a difference. How many people watch The Godfather? I think it's Godfather 3. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, Godfather used to be a movie where every guy knew it, and they used the language, like go to the mattress, that kind of stuff. Everybody knew it. Well, in The Godfather 3, I think it's 3 or maybe it's 4. I don't know how many of those Godfathers were. But um, Don, Cor uh, Don Corleone, Corleone's son, he, he actually comes and uh, I think it's, it's uh, anyway, he, he comes to this, talk to this, this one bishop or priest, um, and they're in this garden, and they're trying to describe how the, the Italian mafia have been in the church for hundreds of years. They love the church because the church forgives them, <laughs> right? There's, there's ways for them to get forgiven, so they, they have worked out a relationship with the church. They give a lot of money, but they also kind of assuage their conscience because, you know, that's what ma uh, the, the mafia does. And so this priest who's actually kind of reflecting the situation says, uses a, a little object lesson and says, come over here. And he goes to this fountain saying, this fountain's been here for hundreds of years. These rocks, these soft rocks have been immersed in water for hundreds of years. And he takes a small little rock out and he cracks it open. And the inside you can see it's dry. He's saying, this is what the mafia's like. They've been in the church but inside, there's no water. Yeah. You can be immersed. You can grow up in church. But it doesn't mean that you're infused. Truth has to get inside you. Now, if you're not even immersed, if you're 10 miles from water, there's no chance. But something has to somehow begin to shape our thoughts, our minds. And it has to be more than just one time a week even, much less twice a month, once a month, twice a year. It has to be this infusion. But when you get infused, there's a huge difference in what it does to your body, what it does to your person, to your soul. So the church has always recognized this. In our day and age, when I was growing up, the way that we get this infusion of truth, the way that we do our workmanlike activity to be able to handle God's word, uh, uh, to handle the truth well and accurately, we would have this thing called quiet time. Anybody hear the word quiet time? Anybody? Okay. At retreats, they would force us, quiet time, that means we're quiet, and we're reading the Bible, and we're praying. Oftentimes, quiet time was five minutes. Five minutes, ten minutes, right? Anybody do your five-minute quiet time in the morning? Yeah, and you go, I did my QT. I did my quiet time. I'm good. Check. Or we talk about devotional. In fact, I write devotionals. This thing that it takes me sometimes two hours to write, and I, I ask around, and I'm there, our church people are so nice. They're like, yeah, I read them, but they're so honest. I'm so thankful for it. I read them because I know you took the time to read them, but eh, they're kind of, ooh, you know, right? But out of, out of conscience or out of a sense of at least I'm doing my Christian part, I did it. Devotion is a word to describe wholehearted, whole life passion. You've given yourself over. 
If you're devotedly devoted to somebody, okay, you're more than a fan. You are, a, you're just crazy about this person. To do a devotional and to have it where it's just check mark. It's, I don't like the word devotional. Actually, I, I, it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies now. Because it's, we, we take this beautiful description of what it means. We're doing this to connect with God, commune with him, and we've made it into a, just an activity that we check mark. Well, I'm thankful for the traditional ways of understanding how you do this. Every day, go to be with God through scripture and prayer. That actually was used with different language earlier on. The Catholics and certain, certain groups, contemporary groups, sorry, contemplative groups, they still use this language. They use the language of daily office. Who's heard that before? Okay. If you've ever done EHS, that's what they describe, emotional and earthly spirituality. Peter Scazzaro got that from this contemplative spirituality, the daily office. When I heard daily office, I was like, ew, I don't like going to the office. You know, it's like cubicles. It's like work. It's like, oh, it's like slavery. It's like chores. Like, I don't want to go in there. Why do I have to call my time with God? This is supposed to be so beautiful, so, oh. Daily office. You know, it's kind of like ruining it, right? Um, well, the word office comes from the basic understanding of mandatory. Ooh, that's kind of harsher. Are you telling me I have to? Every day I have to be with God. I have to take this time in his word and prayer every day. I have to go to the office every day. That's kind of even harsher. But I'm thankful for it now because I think that's very biblical. 2 Timothy 2.15. Make sure that you're doing your very best to present yourself as one approved before God, right? A worker who doesn't have to be ashamed because he accurately handles the word of truth. What does that mean? Something about this should be daily, even when it's hard, even when you don't want to, even when you're not getting the, oh, I've actually responded to what he's asking me to do. This is the long throw of things, not just the individual day. Well, I can't call it a QT. I can't call it devotional because that's been ruined for me too. Daily office is like, if I said daily office, you didn't understand it was like, I'm not going to the office every day with Jesus, right? Um, I'm going to call it daily connect. It's a little better, right? It's more of a, connect is a very millennial word, right? Daily connect. Because that's what I was for. You're not going just for some information so that you know the four gospels and the ten commandments, and you know that Joan of Arc is not Noah's wife, you're not going for information. You're going for transformation. You're going for relationship. You connect with somebody deeply, and it changes you. You're going for communion. You're being with God. You're hearing him. You're giving him your heart. This is all relational language. And so what we're going to do is, for the next eight weeks, we're going to have a daily connect. Oh, sorry. Somehow that didn't translate right. Um, the, the logo, by the way. Well, in the Daily Connect, what we're going to try to do is, if you're part of our grace groups, and I really encourage you to jump in from the beginning. You can pull out if it's too hard, but start with us if you can. But it's not going to be too hard because every day, somebody's going to send you an email to prompt you and to encourage you. Hey, we get to be with God today. And there's going to be a specific format. And the first week, it's only 15 minutes. It's not a lot, right? 15 minutes. 15 minutes. And there's an accountability structure in it. You know that other people are doing it too. You know that they're going to be trying to help you and encourage you, your group leader as well as your group members. And there's some form and some very, very variety. So there's a clear structure so you're not like, what do I do for 15 minutes now? I'm going to th- my thumbs. Instead, 
But at the same time, there's going to be, over the eight weeks, there's going to be different emphases. So every day, we're going to have you spend a little time in prayer, two minutes in silence to start off with. And then we're going to be, for the next two weeks, we're going to be getting a truth infusion. Ask you to read eight minutes just straight. And I know it doesn't mean it doesn't sound like much, but actually if you're really focused, eight minutes can get you at least two chapters. Even if you don't get through the two chapters, that's okay. You spent eight minutes infusing yourself with truth. And then two or three minutes reflecting on that. What did God say? What did you see? What are you noticing? What's moving in your heart? And then prayer. Fifteen minutes every single day. And I can tell you this, I've been doing devotions with our, our devotions with my with our pastors. We do our own version of it. And um, I can, I, I can tell you, there are days where sometimes I'm so busy, I'm so tired, I don't want to do it. You know, I'm like, I studied the Bible so much today, I don't want to do my devotion. It happens for pastors. But because I know both pastors are doing it, and sometimes we're not perfect, by the way, there's that extra accountability. Oh, I want to stay in this. And it's meant a lot. This is the Daily Connect. It's going to be all available through our app. Two weeks of all of that, these next two weeks are already up there. But every morning, if you're part of our grace groups, you'll get this in your inbox, prompt you. You get to have a daily connect, today's connect with God. And there's a follow-up with accountability. That's what we're going to be doing in our grace groups. Our grace groups are going to be simple. Just at the end of our grace groups, we're going to really just focus on how do we build a regular lifestyle of time with God. You might not think, like, that's that important or why you spent eight weeks doing this? But you know how hard it is to actually build this into your life? It's going to take this much. But I can say, when you're doing this, you're actually getting infusion of God's truth in his word. Something's going to happen. You're going to be able to hear God better. Okay? You're going to be able to sense God. You're going to be able to kind of get a sense of who he is. If you've ever, like, I, my dad told me a lot of stories about his growing up and about all kinds of stories. He's a great storyteller. And I realized he would never really tell me his heart. He would never say, son, this is who I am. This is what I've experienced. This is what I want you to know. He would tell me these stories. But as I listened to his stories carefully, I realized who he was. I realized why he is the way he is. When you spend time in the scriptures getting infused with him as he's revealing how he loved and how he responded to the people back then and in Jesus clearly, guess what? You get to really know him. You're going to be able to know this is God, this is not. You get to get a sense of his vision and his values. What is he bringing forward? It's very clear. And what does he care about? The great part of the more is it's not just about us doing my very best. That's important. But the great part is he is going to do his very best to help us. Jesus promises his own disciples after spending three years with them, day in, day out, they were immersed in truth. He was preaching and talking. Even when they get it, he would explain it to them. But he's saying, guess what? After I go, I'm going to send the Spirit and he's the spirit of truth who is going to come inside you. Every Christ believer is filled with the spirit. Every Christ follower has access to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And when he comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. It means the disciples after three years with Jesus needed more truth, daily truth. They needed to walk with God. They needed more. The spirit of truth was going to do that. 
I think that's such a beautiful promise that everywhere you go, not only do you have the light of God's word as a lamp, a flashlight to your path, but you have a guide who's going to help you to understand and walk through. There's a difference from somebody who has lived this way. You can't tell right away sometimes. But I'm going to use an ecology, a forest example. When I was in college, I took an ecology class. and It was actually a pretty higher, upper-level ecology class. We only had like 10 or 12 students in the class. And um, the professor was this really interesting guy. He always smelled a little because uh, he didn't take a lot of showers. Just, you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, um, he took us out to the forest on a field trip. It was fun. We would drove out to the forest. And he, we got to see a peat moss bog. We got to see all kinds of stuff. And we talked to him because this was his life. He was sharing. He was so much better as a, as a guide than a, than a lecturer. And then we're walking by this forest area, and he stops me and says, Martin, do you see those two trees over there? I go, yeah. Uh, tell me what you notice. One tree was really solid. It was really big. Great leaves spanning. And another one right next to it looked really thin, and his, his leaves were not as green. And so I was like, yeah, I see two trees. That one looks like it's, like, old. It looks like it's, like, 30 years old. I don't know. That one looks like it's really young, like it's two years. And a huge difference. And he says, you know, that tree in the right is 15 years old. You know how I know? Because I was here 15 years ago. Yeah, I do field trips every year. That tree in the left is 15 years old because I remember it. Well, I'm like, how is that possible? Okay, you're, you're, you're trying to mess with me, right? He's like, no. That tree in the right got access to light and to sun. And all that light that was hitting it over all those 15 years, look how big it's become. The tree in the left was covered by the tree to the left of it, and it didn't get as much sun. Same amount of time, but one, because it was inundated and fused with light grew so strong. One, after 15 years, looks like it's a two-year-old. I think that makes a lot of sense for a lot of people, that if you're infused with all the resources that you need to walk and to live with God regularly, it makes a difference. Maybe not in a, in a, a one-day span. Maybe it will in a 10-day span, a year, five years. But over the course of time, even a life, it changes you. I'm going to finish real quick with just this last kind of reason why it's so important to get a truth infusion. Because we live in a world that is so inundated with lies. So many things that look so good, feel so right, but does not lead to life, does not lead to God. Sometimes we're not even aware that these are not our thoughts, but the enemy is placing them in our minds, trying to convince us to believe these things. Things. This is the nature of spiritual warfare. It's not about you encounter somebody who's demon-possessed. It's about actually enemy trying to deceive you or overwhelm you with fear to, to distance you from the truth of who God is and who you are in him. Interestingly enough, when you see this language of spiritual warfare, Apostle Paul puts it this way, Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God, this is spiritual warfare, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. We do not fight against flesh and blood, right, but against the powers and principalities. This is spiritual warfare. How do you fight spiritual warfare? Do you scream and shout, in the name of Jesus, as some people do? What does he say? Put on God's armor. And part of that armor is actually not only the breastplate of righteousness that covers your heart, but the belt of truth that actually covers your core and gives you strength. Truth is so significant in actually knowing not only what God wants for you to have a fruitful life, to grow tall and strong like an oak of righteousness, 
truth is important because if you don't have it, it's easy to actually believe in the lie, and the lie leads you to destruction, leads you to death. Um, this is how Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the weapons we fight with in spiritual warfare are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What is he talking about? We, what strongholds? We demolish strongholds of arguments and every pretension that sets up against the knowledge of God. In other words, false narratives, lies about why you're here, your worth, and what you're supposed to be doing and living that go up against the truth of who God is in his plan. What we do in spiritual warfare is we take captive every thought. Is this God's truth or not? Okay? And then we discern it and we kick out the stuff that's not and make it obedient to Christ. I can tell you one of the reasons why I've been immersing myself in truth, and I told you last week that I spent a month reading through the Bible in January because I needed it so desperately because that month after Emma died, I was getting hit with so many lies. Kept hearing I'm cursed. Kept hearing God has abandoned me. Kept hearing it's my fault. Kept hearing that uh, there's no life. And you can't help but think of that. Just it just it came so hard. And there were times when, and still I have to fight it because those lies. You're you're not a good father. You're not a good pastor. You're not a good person. God does not love you. He has no hope for you. It is so hard to fight off, because. It's not simply just the circumstance. It's there's, I have an enemy. You and I have an enemy. What do you do when you're inundated with false truth? If you live and work hard and make a good life for yourself, that's what God wants. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. God wants you to have and everything that's not there. That means it's your fault. That's a blatant lie. Did you know that? You know that 85 to 90% of Christians believe in this, that this is in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Okay, trust me, I've read the Bible a lot, dozens of times. It's not in there. I've got all kinds of biblical software and books. It's not in there. That's a straight-up lie. God helps those who help themselves? No, no, no. You know what the Bible says? Why we were still sinners why we were so lost, why we screwed up our lives to the point where we didn't have no hope, that's when he sent his son. Not just to call us to him, to have a daily com- connection, to have a life with him, but actually to die for our own sins, to take all the costs of our own mistakes and that of the world on himself and to give us life, to adopt us into his family, to give us hope for heaven. It might not make much sense to you, but you're going to be facing these lies at all kinds of variations. Arguments and pretensions that sets itself against the knowledge of God. Why spend time, 15 minutes a day or more, with God when you can be doing something else more productive? Your job is demanding you. You have to work harder. And if you don't make your place, you're not going to get where you need to go. These are not necessarily a reflection of the truth that God has you in the palm of his hand. He's going to lead you and provide for you. you. More important than being a success in the world is actually what? Knowing God and following him. This is the battle. And without a truth infusion on a daily basis, you'd be surprised how easy it is to get caught up in the lies. In his love, he's not only called us, say your life counts, okay, that You're going to be held to account not because he's mean, 
right? Or he's like, you know, some of our moms are like that. Tiger moms? No. Or, or, or dads. But because there's so much beautiful responsibility and opportunity in our lives, and he's going to provide his spirit. I want you to bow your heads with me as we pray.